Well, as I said, uh, we're going to open God's Word now, and if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to Proverbs chapter 25. Uh, If you have not been around the past couple of Sundays, uh, we are doing a series in the summer months in the book of Proverbs. That series is called Wisdom and... And we've already looked at wisdom and planning and wisdom and blessing or wisdom and joy. And uh, just as we come to this uh, topic today, just want to just talk about the definition of wisdom. I define wisdom as the skill to navigate life under God's rule. So since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we cannot define it apart from God. So it's not enough just to say that wisdom is the skill to navigate life or even to say that wisdom is the skill to navigate life well. Wisdom is the skill to navigate life under God's rule. And today we're looking at what I think is one of the most important areas where we need wisdom. We're looking at wisdom and relationships. So this is God's world. We are part of the world that he has made. He's created us with both the capacity and the need for relationship. One of the very first things that God says about man is, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, in context, what God was speaking to was the fact that Adam needed a perfect counterpart in the form of Eve. But by extension, that is true for all of us. It's not good for us to live life alone or isolated. We need relationships. We're relational creatures. That's God's design for us. And the thing that we need most in our relationships is wisdom. Just think about all the different relationships that you have. Uh, you have a relationship with, you, with your immediate family. You are a son or a daughter, a husband, a wife, a sibling, a, a parent. You're, you're one of those things. You've got relationships in all sorts of different directions just in your immediate family. And then you could extend that to your extended family. You have relationships with your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, maybe your grandkids, your cousins, and all the rest of, of that. You have relationships with your friends, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with your acquaintances. The list could go on and on. We all have dozens, maybe hundreds of relationships to manage, and we need wisdom to do that well. So the book of Proverbs has lots to impart to us or lots of wisdom to impart to us when it comes to relationships. And I'm not Uh, intending to be exhaustive this morning, but we're going to zero in on one particular passage in the book of Proverbs that I think has a lot to teach us about wisdom and relationships. We're in Proverbs chapter 25, and we're going to look at verses 16 to 26. And this is what it says. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Uh, Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you, And hate you. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue angry looks. 
It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Like a muddied spring or polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Well, out of those 11 verses, I want to highlight five things that we learn about wisdom and relationships. And the first one is that there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. So it might not be obvious when you first read it, but verses 16 and 17 are actually a pair. Those verses go together. Verse 16 says this, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Now, I think we understand that proverb, that statement on its own. Overindulgence in honey or in any good thing can turn it into something repulsive. So I like hot dogs, okay, especially in the summertime, grill up a couple hot dogs on the barbecue, place them in a soft bun, slather them with mustard and relish, and you've got a foretaste of heaven, right? But there is a law of diminishing returns when it comes to hot dogs. I mean, the first one is to die for. You chase that down with the second one, and you know it's not quite as good. You follow that up with a third, and it's usually not a good idea, right? Now, if you're a teenager here this morning, you're probably saying, what is he talking about? I can eat seven hot dogs with no issues. I I, I get that. I, I understand that Joey Chestnut can eat 63 of them in 10 minutes, but I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, I don't want to know what happens after that. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Now, I want you to notice the similarities between verse 16 and verse 17. Verse 16, again, is if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Verse 17, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. It's the same principle. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing. And and verse 17 is making the same point as verse 16, only now in the context of relationships or neighborly relations. And just as we have to learn our tolerance level for honey, how much can we handle, so we have to learn our neighbor's tolerance level for us. How much is too much? Guests, like fish start to stink after three days, as the contemporary proverb puts it. I mean, you have someone stay, overstay their welcome, and you run into those kinds of troubles. Bruce Walke summarizes the teaching of these verses by saying this, even things as desirable as honey and neighborliness can become loathsome through excess. So there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Now, Well, since we're talking about relationships, look, I'm an introvert, so I naturally gravitate towards this kind of thing. But I actually think it's important for every one of us to understand this principle. Verse 17 says, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't develop deep relationships, but that we shouldn't cling to dependent ones. So just think about the best relationships you have, the best friendships you have, the best relationships you have 
are the ones where there is an interdependence. You should be able to call upon your friends when you need them, but you shouldn't just call on them when you need them. Now, I've been blessed with some really good friendship. I've got some long-term friendships, even some sort of lifelong friendships. I've got a bunch of friends in ministry as well that I like to get together with and, and sort of just talk shop with, that kind of thing. But the best of those relationships even are the ones where there's a mutual encouragement that takes place. So I will sometimes call these guys up and just ask them for wisdom when I'm facing a decision or facing some challenges, and they will sometimes call me. That is a healthy relationship dynamic where it goes in both ways. An unhealthy relationship dynamic is one where the needs only run in one direction. I've got a crisis. I have a problem. I need a favor. And what happens in those kinds of relationships over time is what verse 17 describes. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Now, I know that sounds really harsh, but sometimes we just need to hear the truth in its blunt form so that it can penetrate our thick skulls. I mean, what what happens when relationships become dependent like that? You're always in your neighbor's house. You're always asking for things is that that person's number shows up on your call display or you see a text from them and you're like, ugh, I wonder what they want now. I wonder what the crisis is now. You know, maybe you can think back to a time you had a really clingy boyfriend or girlfriend or even just a a friend at one point. That kind of thing can drive a person away. So there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house. Well, on that happy note, let me highlight a second truth we discover here. And that is that there are several ways to be a bad neighbor. And you thought my teaching wasn't practical. But if you want to know how to be a bad neighbor, here you go. So I think we all know we're supposed to love our neighbor, right? It's one of the Bible's great commands. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then he said, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what does that actually look like in practice, to love your neighbor? I think sometimes you can answer a question like that by looking at the opposite of it. So verses 18 to 20 show us three different ways to be a bad neighbor. Verse 18 says, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. So the first way you can be a bad neighbor is by actively seeking your neighbor's downfall. This verse denounces the person who bears false witness against their neighbor. Now, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor is one of the Ten Commandments. There's a reason this is so serious. To bear false witness against your neighbor is to actively seek their downfall or their demise. It is a deadly serious thing. Just think about the terms that are used here to describe bearing false witness against your neighbor. It says it's, it's like a bear club or like a, sorry, like a war club or like a sword or like a sharp arrow. 
These were the best weapons you could possess in the ancient world. The war club was used for up-close, hand-to-hand combat. The sword was used for sort of less-close, hand-to-hand combat. And the arrow was used for long-distance battle. All three of them were designed to inflict maximum damage on your enemy. You could bash his brains in with the club, you could run him through with your sword, or you could pierce his heart with an arrow. Either way, you've killed him. Bearing false witness is like that. It's actually on that level. You don't have to be in a courtroom to bear false witness against your neighbor. You do it any time you speak falsehood against your neighbor or against someone in your relationship circle. You tell a story that makes your boss look like a tyrant and makes you look like the victim or like the hero. You're assassinating their character when you do that. The person you shared your story with now views that individual with contempt. You've created that. Now, in two weeks, we're doing wisdom and words, so I'm not going to say much more uh, about that other than just to remind you that our words actually have that kind of power. They have this deadly power. Proverbs elsewhere says, the tongue has the power of life and death. So one way to be a bad neighbor is to actively seek their downfall. A second way to be a bad neighbor can be seen in verse 19. Verse 19 says... Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or like a foot that slips. So if the first way to be a bad neighbor is to actively seek your neighbor's downfall, the second way to be a bad neighbor is to passively contribute to their downfall by being unreliable. And this verse is really a description of a fair-weather friend. They're a great friend to invite to a party, but not such a great friend when you have a crisis. I've said this to you before, but you know who your real friends are on moving day. The person that shows up on moving day, that's a real friend. Passively participating in your neighbor's downfall by being unreliable is just as serious as actively seeking their downfall. It's described here as treachery. Now, it's not described with the weapons of war, but just think about the terms that are used here. This person, it says, is like a bad tooth or like a foot that slips. Now, a toothache might seem like, well, that's no big deal. I mean, unless you've actually had a toothache, and then you know that that little ache, I mean, it just has reverberations throughout your whole body. You know what a pain it can be. The simple task of eating loses all pleasure. It becomes associated with pain. The thing you trust in for every bite you take all of a sudden just crumbles on impact. That's what a treacherous person is like in the day of trouble. In the same way, if you've ever had a foot injury, you know that it renders you unable to do the simplest of tasks. That's how miserable an unreliable neighbor makes your life. Third way to be a bad neighbor is found in verse 20. And verse 20 says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Now, I would summarize this as saying you can make your neighbors... The third way to be a bad neighbor is that you can make your neighbor's grief worse by providing shallow comfort. Now, maybe this one requires some explanation. The proverb here compares singing songs to a heavy heart 
with taking off someone's outer garment on a cold day and pouring vinegar on soda. The NIV translates that last line as pouring vinegar on a wound. So we know that would be painful, but they arrive at that translation by taking this expression, pouring vinegar on soda, as some sort of idiomatic expression. It means you cause pain. I'm not sure it's even necessary to, to translate it that way to get at what the proverb is saying. All three of these ideas actually speak to doing something for your neighbor that's really of no help to them. Pouring vinegar on baking soda is is kind of a cool science experiment, and there's lots of fizzing that happens. You can at least feel like you did something, right? Look at all that fizz. Helping someone take their jacket off on a cold day might make you feel like you did something. Oh, there, there, let me take that big, clunky jacket off you so you don't have to lug it around in this cold weather. You didn't actually help the person, you made their experience worse. And singing songs to a heavy heart is just like that, right? Hey, cheer up, man. Don't worry. Be happy. That kind of superficial help often just makes the situation worse. That's what this proverb is describing. You can actually hurt when you think you're helping. New Testament speaks to this when James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? I actually think there's a a word in this proverb for the current obsession with virtue signaling. You know, I posted a square or a flag. I changed the background color of my Facebook profile. Look at you changing the world one social media post at a time. I did something. I mean, there's lots of fizz. But you can actually hurt more than you help when you take a superficial approach to it. That's what this verse is speaking to. Three ways to be a bad neighbor. Third thing we learn about wisdom and relationships is that it's possible to love even your enemies. So verses 21 and 22 take us into new territory when it comes to neighborly relations. Verse 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him poison to eat. Right? It's not what it says. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Now, that was a radical idea at the time of Solomon, and it's actually no less radical today. When we have enemies, our natural tendency or inclination is to want to destroy them, to bring them down in some way. The Bible calls us to love them. Jesus said it like this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. There's a famous incident that took place during the life of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln was giving a speech during the American Civil War, and in that speech, Lincoln referred to Southerners as erring human beings instead of enemies that needed to be exterminated. 
There was a patriot lady who was listening to the speech who became incensed over Lincoln's remarks. She came up afterwards to rebuke him and to say that enemies actually need to be destroyed. Lincoln responded by saying, Why, madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Now, that's a great story, but we all know it's actually harder to do that in real life. It's harder to love your enemies. And I said it's possible to love even your enemies. So what is it that makes it possible for us to love even our enemies? I think the Bible points us in three directions when it comes to answering that question. The first thing we need to do is we need to remember that this is actually how God has treated us. Broadly speaking, we could point to God's common grace. I mean, you can see that in the verse I read you from Matthew which says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on both the just and the unjust. He doesn't withhold good, even from those who are evil or act unjustly. But more specifically, we can see it in what God did for us while we were his enemies. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were God's enemies. We were hostile in mind towards him. And God's response to us was to send Jesus to be our sacrifice, to reconcile that relationship. Second direction the Bible points us in when it comes to loving our enemies is to to help us understand that we reveal ourselves to be God's children when we do this. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, when Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, he's not saying this is how you become. This is how you become God's children. But this is how you reveal yourself to be the children of God, that you respond the way he responded to you. This is why we are repeatedly exhorted in the New Testament to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. That's what allows us to love our enemies. It's to remember we've been forgiven of something far greater by God. Third reason we can love our enemies is the one highlighted here in verse 22, and that's because we we can have confidence in God's final judgment. Verse 22 goes on to say this, For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. See, loving our enemies is a way to sort of kill them with kindness. It, It might be that your kindness in the face of their hostility produces a sense of shame in them that might lead them to repentance. That might be what those burning coals on their head is about. It produces that kind of sense of shame in them so that they repent and respond appropriately. That would be a desirable outcome. But even if that doesn't take place, we can have confidence that the Lord is judged, that he will settle these things in the end. This is how the Apostle Paul applies this verse from Proverbs. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, vengeance belongs to God. God will sort everything out in the end. Even if someone slanders you or you suffer unjustly, we can love our enemies because we know that ultimately our reward comes from God, that he is the judge of all things. Well, there's a fourth thing we discover about wisdom and relationships in this passage, and that is that relationships can be a source of grief or joy. And verses 23 and 24 speak to the grief part. Verse 23 says, The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue angry looks. And then verse 24 says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Some relationships are marked by the kind of heated conflict that is described here. There's always a storm brewing. There's always a a north wind that might kick up and bring rain. A sharp tongue can be deadly in those types of situations. That's the warning that we find here. Even the home can become a place of conflict rather than peace. Now, I know I could just pass over verse 24, not say anything about the quarrelsome wife. It's a long weekend. I'm not looking to generate hate mail or anything. But it's here in the text, so I think it's important to say something about it. And maybe the first thing to say is that this is not the only place we read something like this in the book of Proverbs. So here's a sampling. Proverbs 21.9 says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 21.19 is similar. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. In Proverbs 27, we read this, A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Just, Just a couple of quick general observations about these Proverbs, especially if you think that they are somehow derogatory towards women. The first one is just to remember that the virtues of women are repeatedly held up in the book of Proverbs, right? Wisdom is personified, as we saw last week, as lady wisdom. Solomon, if you read through this book, you'll find that he instructs his sons to honor and to listen to their mother. The enconium that's at the very end of, of this book in Proverbs 31 sings the praises of the virtuous woman. So the book is not saying, well, this is what all women are like. The second general comment is that, yes, men can be quarrelsome too, but these verses have a particular type of quarrelsomeness in mind that is more observable in women. Now, men are addressed for other shortcomings in the book of Proverbs. So in Proverbs 21, for instance, where we find two of the quarrelsome wife sayings, you will find that men are singled out for pride and for violence and for laziness and for dishonesty and for stinginess. So I don't think these Proverbs are picking on women. I don't think we should see these Proverbs as being any different from the different instructions that husbands and wives receive in Ephesians chapter 5. Their husbands are instructed to love their wives and wives are instructed to respect their husbands. Does this mean that wives don't need to love their husbands or that husbands don't need to respect their wives? Not at all. 
but those are more likely to be the areas of struggle for each party in the marriage. So that's what's addressed. I remember meeting with one couple for marriage counseling where there was a lot of quarreling that was taking place in their relationship. And it seemed, as we met, that the wife was quite contentious and found fault with everything her husband did. So you can probably guess her response when I suggested she might be quarrelsome. No, I'm not. I think in light of this Proverbs here in, in Proverbs 25, the point of application should be, Am I seeking to make the home a place of peace and not conflict? Is your home a sanctuary like that? Do you seek to create that kind of environment in the home? Gotten myself in enough trouble, so let me say that. I said relationships can be a source of grief or joy. So let's just talk about the joy part briefly. Verse 25 says, Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. The the thirsty soul here is the person who's in need of encouragement, and they're just parched. They're just dying for their need of it. And this is what a friend supplies, right? You get a phone call, you get a text, you get a message from someone bringing you good news. It literally makes your day. And again, we can make our relationships defined either by bringing about more grief or by bringing about more joy. Final thing we see here in regards to wisdom and relationships is that being a good neighbor doesn't equal being soft. Now, we could just stop there with this kind of positive note, but I think verse 26 is instructive for us. That verse says, like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. So if the good news or the good tidings we share with others are like a cold drink of water on a hot day, failing to take a stand for righteousness is like dispensing polluted water. And I think this is a reminder that's desperately needed today. One of the axioms that we sometimes hear in the business world is that goodness is often the enemy of greatness. When it comes to relationships, I think we could say that niceness is often the enemy of truth. And what I mean by that is often that in our attempts to be nice, we're tempted to neglect the truth. We're not going to tell anyone they're wrong. We're not going to take a stand on anything that might be unpopular. And that's the approach we take. There's a quote that's often attributed to Edmund Burke. I looked it up. It's actually not from him. It's anonymous, but I think it's helpful, which says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I think that's what this proverb is driving at. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Now, I know to say that niceness would be the enemy of anything will, make, will strike many of you as being un-Canadian. I mean, we pride ourselves on politeness. We don't want to cause offense. We think that's the, always the loving thing to do. But listen to these words from Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. 
Someone said that hidden love is like winking at a girl in the dark. I mean, again, you're doing something, but it's not really effective. If you never declare your feelings, it's unlikely you're going to end up with a girl, right? That's the problem with hidden love. That's the problem with equating love with niceness. Well, I just never say anything that could cause offense. Reminded of an incident that happened in international politics. In 1959, the leader of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, made an unprecedented visit to America. This was right after the death of the Russian dictator Joseph Stalin, and Khrushchev was his successor. He had already caused a global stir by denouncing in Russia, in a long and and detailed speech to the Politburo, Stalin's many atrocities, his genocidal policies, his cold-blooded assassinations of toadies, informers, wonks, lieutenants, anyone who had become redundant, whose existence no longer served the party, his purges both random and systematic, of anyone he didn't trust, which was almost everyone. That's how Stalin operated. Khrushchev was scheduled to appear at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., and it was widely expected he would deliver an abbreviated version of his Politburo speech. Every newspaper, every magazine of standing was there in attendance. They had at least one reporter present. The room was packed. And Khrushchev did not disappoint. He delivered via translator a shortened but potent indictment of his former boss, complete with all the corroborating evidence. He finished his speech. He opened the floor for questions. And someone called out from the crowd, Mr. Khrushchev, you have just given us an account of Mr. Stalin's many crimes against humanity. You were his right-hand man during much of that. What were you doing? Well, that question was translated to Khrushchev, and when he heard it, he exploded with anger. Who said that? He demanded. No one answered. Who said that? He bellowed and glowered at the audience. There was silence. Who said that? He asked again, this time low and quiet with more menace. Everyone looked down at their shoes. After a moment, Khrushchev said, that's what I was doing. And I wonder how often that's true for us. I mean, we see all kinds of radical ideologies being introduced in our schools and elsewhere, and rather than say anything, we're just looking down at our shoes. Right? We give way before the wicked. We're too afraid to cause offense or lose favor or face reprisal? And could it be that there is so much confusion in the world, so many people drinking from muddied springs and polluted fountains, because the righteous have given way before the wicked? Now, some people hear that and say, well, I mean, isn't our model supposed to be Jesus? And it is. And remember, Jesus is the one who came full of grace and truth. He's the one who healed but also said, stop sinning so that nothing worse may befall you. Right? The famous story at the, the, of the woman at the well tells her to go get her husband. She says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've actually had five and the one you have now is not your husband. Right? Communicated grace and truth. And we're called to do the same. We are called to speak the truth 
in love. It is not unloving to do that. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. So one of the principles of relationships that we learn is that being a good neighbor is not, it doesn't equal being soft. It doesn't mean you just roll over for everything. There is a place to take a stand and say, no, that's not right. That's not the truth. So I know relationships, are, it's a broad topic. There's, we, again, we all have lots of them. I just want to pray for all of us that we would have wisdom in, in, in the context of our relationships. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that even as we think about This call, some of the calls in here that are difficult, the call to love even our enemies. We thank you that that this is what you did for us. While we were hostile in mind towards you, you reconciled us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through him taking our place. And God, we pray that as we operate in this world, as we think about all the relationships we have, those that are peaceable and those where there's some tension, would you give us wisdom in the midst of those times? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.